Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. If you're just finding us on YouTube, our show is dedicated to answering your questions about media and virtual production. Our second hour is typically somewhere, somewhere where we'll focus on a topic or a guest of interest. Saturday's our education hour. So we have John Snyder with us today, and he'll be talking about the role of stress in education. So that's later. But for now, let's get into our questions. If you want to join or ask questions or join our community, you can find uh, out how to do so at our website at officehours.global. All right, go turn. Uh, what do we have? The first question is from Douglas Carmichael. What have you, the panel experiences been with the stage with stage manager on macOS Ventura? I did some testing on a 13-inch Mac. Book Air M2, and it made the small screen surprisingly usable coming from a 15-inch MacBook Pro. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I've been running it on my MacBook Pro 16, and to be honest with you, I can't decide if I like it or don't like it. I, I, I don't know it brings me that much benefit yet, that it's just not a change in the way of working. So I'm, I'm trying to stick with it, trying to bring multiple screens. If you tend to operate your MacBook the way you operate your iPad, which is just jump from one app to another, then it's quite useful to have. The moment you put multiple things on the screen at once, I, I it just... I don't understand it, what I'm missing. It's an okay way of working, but it's just a different way of working to me. All right, so maybe that workflow will work for you. Let's go to our next question. Our next question comes in from Germany, from Christian Priomamulian from Wolfsburg. He asks, which chroma key color does Alex suggest for a Wacom-based telestration setup? looking for a Wacom screen background color that does not shine on the face or otherwise spills over. Go ahead, John. Alex typically recommends a Luma key rather than a Chroma key, which would, the best color for not having color spillover would be a black screen in that case. Mitchell? And the actual uh, drawing on the screen, um, he tends to use uh, green, uh, could easily be blue or red or any other color, but uh, green is a good color because green doesn't normally appear uh, for the most part, so it's not going to compete on the screen for any others. All right, let's go to our next question. Our next question comes in from Guy Corcoran in Seattle. What is an alternative to New Tech Talk Show? John? So... Uh... I wasn't ready. Uh, Guy sent me a softball on this one. It's interesting because we, we've reviewed NeuralNet in the past, long ago, about a year and a half, maybe two years ago now, which is a dedicated box that w was a competitor against the uh, Skype TX box. This thing has Skype TX box. The one that, that Guy is talking about is called a, um, I'm looking up, it's called Quick Link. And this is a dedicated unit with the cloud-based um, and, and component, and it's super expensive. It's like nineteen thousand dollars for a standalone server running their software, and then the and then their cloud component. Uh, but a, a lot of high-end broadcasters have been using this for call-in. Uh, but it's it's super similar to the to to the neural net product. But for all of us, we'll just use Zoom ISO and then feed it into a feed it into a Mac mini, right? So it's just interesting that this 
there's still these dedicated products out there that are super expensive. So we'll see what happens. And John, is that uh, just for um, video? You said mentioned it, it's in call-in. Is that for video conferencing or is there it, an actual? It, does, it has video, it has video call-in and it has audio call-in, has partic remote participation via web. They've got about four different products. Um, the quick link product. I don't have their URL here. I'll find it and put it in the chat room. Okay. Thanks for that, John. Let's go to our next question. The next question is from Douglas Carmichael. I read an article about Disney's playout transmission facility in Texas, and they mentioned that it's mostly an HD SDI based facility with pockets of the SMPTE 2110. Why could that be? And could you see traditional SDI routing become obsolete? Ed Mitchell? We're kind of in a uh, transition phase where just about everything, uh, technical and media, is switching to an IP-based system. And the SMPTE 2110 standard is one of those systems. It's an IP-based. It's uh, it, it specifies uh, the timing and the character uh, 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 of each of the packets that go in there, and it's a standard. Uh, however, um, the reason there is a combination of both is that there are a lot of SDI devices out there for routing and distribution and for connection between devices. So until that uh, uh, transitionary phase where we go all IP, all in, uh, there's going to be a lot of SDI devices out there. You're not going to see new HDMI or maybe not even new uh, SDI uh, devices uh, coming out, maybe improvements on what's out there, you're going to see more people making the switch to IP-based to a system like the uh, SMPTE 2110. All right. Thanks for that comprehensive answer. Let's go to our next question. Next question is from Nathan Keshian from Oregon City. He asks, medical research shows higher rates of back and neck pain, etc., in gamers. Do any panelists experience low back pain or other pain discomfort from spending time in front of a computer? What things do you do to prevent or lessen it? All right. I think we've had a good showing of our panel that uh, can weigh in on that. Let's start with Dave. Yeah, it, it's something I've dealt with uh, quite a bit when I first started, but um, I adjusted my posture, uh, support of my chair. I elevated myself so my feet are flat on the ground and I'm not sort of dangling or, or knees up. Uh, in terms of the back pain in the neck, um, I remember speaking to an editor in Toronto once, a good friend of mine, and he complained about this, and I asked him how close the monitors were. He was using a two-monitor system, and he said, well, they're right beside each other in front of me. And I said, have you ever tried to separate them? And he moved one right to the left and a little more to the right, and that way he had to do this a lot more to be able to watch what he's doing. And he reported back that his neck and everything else was all loosened up again because he wasn't just rigidly using just his eyes. So for gamers, the concentration is always very firm and you're controlling a center image. And if you're uh, making your whole body rigid in response to the game, uh, it's likely gonna start burning your muscles and uh, giving you back pain, yeah. Thanks, Dave. John? I think for me, the best tip is Think in right angles. Make sure your feet are flat on the ground. Your knees are right angles. Your wrists are right angles. Or I'm sorry, your uh, elbows. I don't remember what the body part that was. And your eye line is a right angle as well. Thank you. Uh, Mitchell? 
Well, all those are great suggestions, and you want to uh, make sure that you get your body in a neutral state, um, not stressed, because stress over time will build up, and then you get all those burning sensations, and then eventually your muscle will go out in your back, and then your back is out. Um, if, for example, you can't get your arm in a good position to rest on the table, uh, they make devices. Uh, I have one that I've tried. I don't like it, but uh, maybe it'll work for you. Basically, it clips on the table at this end, and then uh, this part allows you to rest your arm at a comfortable height while you're, uh, you're doing your work. But the best thing you can do, uh, particularly if you're working on a computer for long hours like I do, um, is to stand up and stretch and take frequent breaks. Um, I would say like every half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, but get up and exercise and move around a little bit and do the same for your eyes uh, because you're, sta you're staring at a screen at a set uh, depth um, and that will uh, wear you out, wear your eyes out. So if you have a window or something else in your window, let your eyes relax and stare out and let them have a little bit of exercise too. So uh, don't clench up. And I do that a lot of times when I'm doing like a lot of after effects work, I get excited and I get so tense with my, my hand on the mouse and I'm doing something and I'm excited about it. And I have to say, whoa, Mitch, relax. So once you do that, uh, you're going to be in better shape in the long run. Nice. I have to say, uh, Mitchell, that um, arm support device that you mentioned, I've used one of those for years, just removed one last week because it didn't work out with my new setup. But this is more that's more along the uh, ergonomic than the back uh, that our questioner asked. But go ahead, John. Very simple. You keep these very nearby your desk and it solves all pain. Uh, but then what you can do, uh, you can download your brain into a petabyte. Uh, thumb drive, and then we'll upload you into a new genetically engineered body. All solved. Perfect. Go ahead, Nigel. So I, I, I was a big doubter of a good chair. I had a good chair, but I didn't have a great chair. And I was a big doubter as to whether it really made a big difference. And um, Herman, Miro, Herman Miller Miro has made a huge difference to me. Um, I will tell you that the uh, there are for a while during at least the start of COVID, there are a lot of businesses getting rid of a lot of furniture. So you could actually pick them up pretty cheaply secondhand somewhere. I suspect we're about to head back into the territory. So you don't have to spend the $1,400 to buy a new one, look for secondhand ones. But um, it, it's the thing you do most when you do what, what most of us do, which is sit down. You might as well sit down in something that helps you. Sound advice. Mitchell, you have something else to add? Yeah, I was just going to uh, plus one on Nigel with the chairs. I have an Aeron chair, and I, I love it to death because you can adjust all the uh, settings. Uh, some of the critical areas is the lumbar support for your L5, L4, which can really mess your uh, lower back up um, if it's out of whack uh, for any real length of time. And the other part, surprisingly enough, is to give your thighs um, a little bit of support and lift. And if you can adjust that part, um, and have your feet squarely on the floor, as everybody has recommended. You're in a very good neutral position for your body. I have a couple of chiropractor friends, so they're always on me about what I'm doing. And I uh, cheaped out on a chair once, and uh, my uh, friend took the chair and threw it into the trash. Nice. Um, I, I can vouch for preventative uh, maintenance as far as exercise. I do like a reverse bridge. Um, every morning when I wake up and I feel the difference, um, you know, waking up with back pain, I could probably do 
um, better if I uh, cleaned up on some of the other suggestions that our panelists do, but the preventative part uh, helps as well. And uh, we have plenty of uh, time to answer your questions today. If you'd like to put in uh, your questions, our fine panel of experts are willing to, uh, to take those on. So let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Mitchell Hill, Hill, Hill from Wilmington, Delaware. He asks, how would you rank the RME ADI 2 Pro FS Black Edition as the top quality USB interface to your computer and sound system? And there's a link. Mitchell, just yeah, up the this, is, this is a typical situation where I'm softballing a question to myself so I can brag about a piece of equipment that I have. But I'm also interested in input. Um, I was trying to build a, uh, a music server, which, by the way, um, has not been treating me very well. Um, and it's a, uh, a nano PC that's uh, now dead in the water until I get a new one. But it only has USB out. You don't want to use the, uh, uh, the audio headphone jack for uh, supplying the audio to your sound system. So I was trying to find what will be the very best um, uh, USB type device to get that uh, that digital audio back out to analog or to uh, AES digital. And um, I came upon the uh, RME ADI-2 Black Edition. Um, it goes both ways, which is great. And it uses the standard USB 2. And I've bought a number of different devices, uh, all with varying re results. But this RME... Um, it's just sweet sounding. And I think even Mickey would agree with me that that's a uh, excellent device to be uh, considering for getting the best quality USB audio out of any computer, whether it's a Mac or a PC, as long as it's uh, USB 2 compliant. And then there are lots of devices that um, will get uh, USB audio out into the digital world. Um, but um, if you're going and shopping on Amazon and you get a $30 special, it's going to sound like a $30 special. So if music and sound is important to you, uh, make the proper investment. There are lots of other devices out there that can do this. But um, the, uh, the DAC is the important part, the part that does the uh, conversion from digital to analog. And Mitchell, I believe our asker wanted, you, wanted us to rank this device. So how would you rank it? How would I rank it, 1 to 10 or above all the devices out there? Um, well, again, I, it's sort of self-serving. I, I threw the question out there to myself. Um, I'm going to rank it pretty darn high because um, I went shopping for the very best that I could find. And then I found out what the price was. And that I wasn't happy about that part of it. It's around $2,000. So that's a lot of money to spend to get the USB. There are other devices that do it cheaper, but... The one I have behind me that's sitting in uh, my music uh, server rack um, does everything I wanted to do. And, and it's a shame because I'm not using it to get audio into the computer. I'm only using the output. So there may be cheaper versions or uh, even in the RME product line, uh, less expensive uh, devices that will do basically the same thing. That's a good-looking device. All right, let's go to our next question. Next question is from James Foslin, Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm interested how a person finds the right mic for their voice and budget. The Mic Locker Net says it rents mics and provides resources. Do you have recommendations how to find the right mic? John. So I, I went to Guitar Center and they had five or six mics set up where you can test and they have a quiet room in there. 
uh, they're pretty good like that. I don't know if you have a guitar center in Minneapolis, but uh, that's what I did. I originally bought a Neumann 102, TLM 102, and found out that that mic picks up every noise in my in my room here. And so it wouldn't work out in my room. And so I went to a dynamic mic and it worked out better. So there's a lot of considerations to go through. If you can rent mics from the mic locker, that might be a good idea. Thanks, John. Dave? Yeah, I was going to endorse that, actually, because I was going to recommend you go to your local sound shop and find a guy who will let you test the mics. And they'll walk, you know, pull them out of the boxes and they'll set them up for you as long as you don't handle them too much. You put a pair of headphones on and just compare your your voice in each mic, Oop, like that. Uh, and then you just find out that either you're speaking improperly or the mic's not picking you up. Uh, Mitchell will tell you that speaking properly makes a lot of mics sound really good. Uh, and then you could look back at what uh, Alex was doing with $200 microphone tests just a few months ago, uh, taking them one at a time and doing a test live and showing how much different some of the cheaper ones are. So if you are on a budget, uh, you might want to look at what he had to offer. And as well, um, once you find a mic you like, uh, learn all the characteristics of it and make sure, as John said, it's not picking up far too much and it's just you. Yeah, so not just the mic for you, but also for your environment. Mitchell? Yeah, this can be very subjective. And um, if you use your voice, whether you're a singer or a voiceover person like I am, um, you're used to hearing what your voice should sound like. In other words, it doesn't sound weird to hear your voice back. I know for most people, when they get recorded the first time, they sound strange to themselves, but it's all that bone conduction and everything that uh, you get used to. So being used to how I sound, um, when I test out a microphone, I want to hear it. Um, and I want to hear it on a pair of headphones that I'm used to using, like my Sony 7506s. So if you're going to go out and you're going to test microphones, uh, do what uh, John was suggesting and uh, go to a place like Guitar Center or B&H, if you're lucky enough to be around New York, and um, try them one at a time and, and listen back to yourself as you speak. Um, and listen for all kinds of subtleties because... Um, there's sibilance that uh, comes through on condenser microphones that can be very annoying. Um, sometimes it is better to go back to a uh, dynamic mic, as John did. Um, I'm more into, I want to capture every little bit of my voice um, in terms of uh, <clears throat> when I'm speaking. And uh, because, again, I'm a professional voiceover person, it's very, very important to me. I can't buy a mic from reading specs on a, uh, on a on a website or a catalog. It's just not possible. You have to try them out. So way back when, sorry to be long-winded on this, so we'll have some fun with it. Um, I decided when I got out of the radio business, uh, I became a, a studio owner, that I wanted one microphone that was my microphone that sounded great on me. Not necessarily on you, but it sounded great on me. And that microphone is right there. It's the Neumann U87. It's a condenser. It picks up everything. But I know that mic so well, I know how to play it. So, you know, if I'm doing uh, a car spot, I can get back here and uh, yell at it, and it picks up everything. Or I can lean into it and use what they call mic technique. In a world where microphones are too prevalent. You know, when you can get that processing sound uh, and deep voice. Um, all of those things were important to me, and I think they would be important to you. Just for website uh, not website, uh, webinars and things like what we're doing here on office hours. 
Um, a microphone that picks up without too much background noise because we sent, we spent a lot of time uh, dealing with that. And there's a lot of ways to deal with that. First of all, a condenser mic's going to pick up stuff. So if you've got a lot of fans and air conditioning units that you have to deal with, um, you're going to have to contend with that. Uh, unless you're lucky enough to have a mix pre from sound devices and noise assist, which does a marvelous job of cleaning that up. Unfortunately, I don't have that yet. I'm unfortunately holding out for the most expensive 888 uh, or 833 uh, from sound devices. And when I can get that, I'll go for that. So combination of things, um, lots of microphones to try out side by side. That's the best way to do it. Make sure you bring the headphones that you're most familiar with and uh, take your voice. All right. Some, some good uh, suggestion, James, from our panelists. I uh, hope you uh, got some good tips there. Let's go to our next question. Next question is from Tim McCulloch in Wichita, Kansas. Any opinions as to how metaverse restructuring and possible bankruptcy of Twitter will affect our industry? Nigel. So I think it will affect the industry pretty big. And I think there are, well, they're both two very different examples. I think they have one thing uh, in common. That is they're both built on business models that won't scale in the end. And that, you know, those Silicon Valley companies that got these great valuations by adding uh, users that didn't pay for anything uh, was a great and exciting model, but isn't going to work. And I think we saw last week that Apple was worth more than Twitter plus Facebook plus three other uh, names you can manage, uh, you can name. And they are because it produces real revenue. And so Facebook and Twitter were both going to, at some point, come to a reckoning. They were, uh, you know, gravity was going to come to bear on that because they were both using advertising. Advertising is a market that changes very quickly and it changes very dynamically in this world. But they are two different cases. I think Facebook of, of the two probably has the better chance. It needs to narrow down uh, its businesses to to revenue opportunities. It looks needs to look for commercial uh, ways to make money. I think it will it'll always be a free service to the to the clients. But I think it's got to build a better business service on the back. And it can't just be advertising. Twitter, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of Elon. I'm a fan of Twitter. I think there's a model that's going to come out. I think it's probably more a subscription-based model. I think it's probably more a search and infrastructure-based model. But my guess is, my hope is that Elon has some view of what that really looks like in a business. But he is playing with live ammo in what he's doing. And everything he's doing, he's doing for real. He's doing live. And lots of people are being critical. But let me tell you, it's really easy to be critical. It's really hard to have an answer. Good point. John? The two fundamentals for any company's finance are their revenues and their expenses. And revenues were going down, partially because of what Apple was doing in the advertising sphere. Costs were going up because both companies hired a lot of people in a short amount of time, and wages were going up. And both realized that it was not sustainable to keep going at that rate, and so they're finding different ways to restructure their uh, revenue expense ratios. I think what it means for the industry directly is there's a lot more people, unfortunately, who are very talented who are now looking for work. Mitchell. Yeah, Twitter has a lot of attention on it right now because of Elon's investment. And of course, everybody's saying $44 billion. I just can't comprehend that amount. Um, all companies have valuations that exceed their uh, their grasp just now. So to say that it's... Uh, 
uh, impending bankruptcy of Twitter. There's way too much uh, involvement with Twitter for that to happen. They might find out, fall on temporary hard times on one subject or another. But um, I think Elon put the money in because he was pretty much convinced that uh, somewhere along the line it would uh, bounce back and be a little more of what he wants it to be. So uh, provided he gets his way and he is the boss and he did put the money up, uh, I have a feeling they're going to be able to let that morph into what uh, makes sense. And maybe Twitter needed a correction. Who knows? Dave. Yeah, I'll, I'll comment on Metaverse uh, in that uh, I don't see the use case for it yet. And I don't think the general public sees a use case for it. I kind of think back to before we had ubiquitous Wi-Fi and broadband, uh, the whole computing experience was a little more painful and a little more difficult to justify. But now with mobile and Wi-Fi and a lot of other cell-based data, uh, we now can do a whole lot of things uh, with our systems than we couldn't do before. When the metaverse can do video and all the rest of it 3D and make it seem like it's real, well, then maybe people will feel like that's a better place to live than the outside world. But I'm not yet convinced that the metaverse is a good business case or that it can be leveraged into other things that would generate revenue. Uh, as for Twitter, I'm not a fan. I don't use it and I haven't been, so I won't have a comment on that. Yeah, I mean, as far as the, the media industry, I think of the two, um, meta going towards their, um, you know, metaverse would probably have the most effect on our industry if that was going to be a trend and we had to think about how we wanted to, um, you know, to model our businesses off of media and, and virtual production, if it's be more virtual as far as the meta uh, end of things, or I, I think a lot of a lot of us tend to, to value the more authentic experience than the than the synthetic. Even though we're virtual, we we uh, we appreciate the authentic. So so far, the authentic experiences are a win. As far as you know, what trends? There's always um, people that are going to take advantage of these trends. Um, you know, so um, Meta putting a lot of energy into that. If your business is tied to that, you might be able to ride that way for a while. And if it continues to grow, um, maybe you've got something to uh, to hold on to. Uh, Dave, want to weigh back in? Yeah, it occurred to me that a lot of what um, Facebook had was people providing content to them and then someone leveraging it for advertising. And the same with Twitter. We're the content. And with some other things that are coming up, I can't see them making that case but TikTok is a great example of what's sort of replacing Facebook is that everyone has a chance to make new content and be a different person on the net. And uh, until Metaverse shows that kind of thing is easy to make and easy to publish, uh, I don't see how advertisers are going to be jumping on board for it. Yeah, I think, I think again, our business models tend to be more on paid for services as opposed to uh, for advertising, but we'll see how these things go. All right, let's go to our next question. It's from Nigel Dessau in Austin. I need to go back to networking school from firewalls to VLANs. What resources should I start with? What you working on, Nigel? 
So I'm trying to set up some VLANs in my in my home studio and I share it with my home house. And it occurs to me, and JJ tried to help me this morning, but what he ended up doing was reminding me how much I don't know about the subject. So I think I need either to hire a networking special or I need some remedial training, one-on-one IP networking. So I wonder whether, and I wonder where you send people who say something like that. John. So um, I'm, I'm a networking guy as well for 20 years and the Cisco hierarchy of training is the best and they have a stratified level of different different marks you can get. CCENT is the entry level stuff and then CCNA. You don't want to go any higher than that. This, this is really sophisticated and thorough training. But any of the Cisco entry-level certified stuff is going to give you a good handle on uh, and a good overview of networking. All right. Maybe we can uh, grab one of these guys in after hours and see if we can get some of the basics there. It would be nice to, to have some networking lab. I believe we've mentioned that in the past. Let's go to our next question. Todd Weiser from Fort Walton Beach asks, Affinity just came out with a version 2.0 of its graphics suite. Is anyone using is anyone using any of the Affinity products to support their efforts? Mitchell, I think we talked about this uh, just the other day. They have a full suite of uh, products. I, unfortunately, I'm here for a downvote because I do not use it. It might be a great program, but. I'm using uh, the Adobe suite. Uh, I know a lot of people have questions about why they want a subscription service, but I've been with Adobe since PageMaker, uh, Aldous PageMaker, and then other things like COSA, which is now After Effects. So um, I'm, I'm not inclined to try something new. Um, I, I think the 300 or so dollars that I spend on a yearly subscription um, is something that I'm kind of getting used to. And I bet you Affinity, if they aren't already doing it, is going to go in that same uh, direction because most companies are subscription-based now. Well, they haven't done it yet. I was just looking at them, and you can get their entire suite, the VT Universe license, for $99 right now. I guess it's on sale. And, um, Mitchell, I imagine, um, do you ever use uh, the mobile version of your apps or you pretty much use that on your desktops your adobe suite no i uh, i can only charge when i'm sitting down in my desk here and i fire the system up and go but uh, I, I i rile at the uh, i mean i've got all the boxes for all the uh, actual licenses that i bought all my adobe products for and i they've stacked up over the years uh, right back to photoshop 2.0 or 4 and um it, it's a problem but here's the other thing I'm kind of older and I'm kind of getting set in my ways. So I've just sort of hitched my wagon to that particular uh, company and um, I support them. And the fact that it's all interoperable and I'm sure that Affinity does, Affinity does the same thing. The idea nowadays is that when you buy one program, you're buying into their ecosystem. So uh, I understand that. And you know what, as you say, $99, that's, that's a no brainer. Go ahead and buy it. Yeah, I can uh, I can feel for you, uh, Todd. A lot of people are looking for the Adobe alternates, uh, getting rid of the uh, subscription fee, cutting those those uh, subscription fees as well. So um, that might be uh, a good option. Unfortunately, you caught us at a time where no one no one on the panel um, has some experience with that. So ask us again sometime, and uh, maybe we can give you some of our reviews. Let's go to our next question. 
Douglas Carmichael with two embarrassing PR incidents, Ailey Lilly and Lockheed Martin, enabled by Elon Musk's revamped Twitter Blue Plan. What does that bode for the future of Twitter as a pillar of the digital marketing social communication industry? John. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, basically uh, some pranksters purchased some Twitter accounts and got the blue check mark by paying for the blue check mark and pretended like they were these companies and said stupid things. I think it shows that you really need to consider the unintended consequences of your choices and whether or not that was fully vetted out by Twitter, I don't know. I don't think it's going to cost those companies billions of dollars or really impact Twitter in the long run at all. I think most people would see those things and realize something was wrong. We've grown to realize that you can't trust what you see on the internet. But it does. it's an important question of when I make a change, what are some of the unintended consequences that might happen? Nigel. I think long term, it means nothing short term. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of people getting excited. There are people making mistakes. I think none of, no one really knows how bad Twitter is internally. I think Alex made a point the other day that the luckiest people around at some, some point like this were the board that got out of having to manage that business and give it to Elon. And so I, no one knows how bad this stuff is in there and how serious the problems are. So we're seeing uh, Elon try to do MVP things with a huge install base. And that's a really hard thing to do. But but again, use the 10, 10, 10, you know, 10 days, 10 months, 10 years. I think for the next 10 days, it's going to look crazy. In 10 months, it will have been separated and, and will be settled down. In 10 years, we'll wonder what we were talking about today. Mitchell? All right, I'm going to be the cranky old guy here on the panel. Who cares? I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, blue boxes, check marks, uh, special blessings, sparkles, and other stuff. I don't, I don't uh, follow Twitter so hard that all of those things affect me in my daily life, and I don't think it should affect yours either. And Nigel. So I'll tell you who cares. Who cares are the people that use Twitter. You you don't, so you don't care. I get that. But there's a lot of people who do use Twitter. And there's a lot of people who use it as a communication tool. I can tell you, I get most of my news from Twitter. I don't get it from the main the main page. I get it by filtering. I get it by creating lists. It's a very useful tool to me. It's a, one of the things I look at every day. And so I am very keen to have it work properly. And I'm also therefore willing to pay the $8 a month or a subscription fee to make it happen. So, you know, if you don't use it, you don't care if you do, then there are lots of values to it. Yeah, and we kind of makes brings up the idea of, you know, what kind of trust people have or what kind of influence people have on social networks in general. Uh, Mitchell, I have another thought. I, I, I appreciate Nigel's uh, in input there. Um, I dabble in it. I don't uh, not use it. I do have an account. Um, but I just try not to let any software features drive me nuts on a day-to-day -day basis. So I suppose I'm just saying, let it, everything else settle out. It'll all be good. Don't worry, folks. Thank you for your assurance, Mitchell. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Eric Billings from Washington, D.C. He's wondering, have Audio Wednesdays been paused? If so, was it because of scheduling conflicts or lack of interest? Thanks. Go ahead, Mitchell. I wasn't aware that it was paused. Uh, I enjoy the discussion. Uh, it's a day that sort of uh, supports uh, audio questions, um, and we kind of lean that way. It's not specifically and only 
uh, audio-related things. I think it's morphed a little bit, and that's okay because, as Alex has said before, um, everything is sort of organic here on office hours. So if it moves that way that we become more broad spectrum rather than talking about since one day and uh, AD adapters another, uh, that's okay. So uh, don't look at it in, from the standpoint that it's, uh, it's going. You know, the reports of its death are greatly exaggerated. Thanks for your reassurance, Mitchell. Um, yeah, I think, Eric, you're probably referring to last week. We had our Zoom coverage as well. Um, not often, but sometimes we will preempt some of our regularly scheduled programming for special events. And since we had um, some live Zoom coverage, we did preempt the audio day last week for, for our Zoom coverage. So it was a, um, a one one of a kind thing. Uh, typically, we will uh, stick to that. So don't worry. Your audio day isn't going anywhere. In fact, I hear uh, a little rumor that Dante is coming back next week. So stay tuned for that. Let's go to our next question. Todd Weiser from Fort Walton Beach wants to know, I have audio coming in from many sources to include many from YouTube and other websites. I have noticed the levels can vary a lot. Some come in with a lot of clipping. Is this common or may I have an issue on my side? Mitchell? Unfortunately, Todd, it's very common because people are making decisions on what they think is uh, the appropriate uh, levels that they should be at. Here on Office Hours, we spend a lot of time uh, at the beginning of our shows before we broadcast setting a consistent volume. So you'll notice that the levels between us are very, very different, uh, are not very different, I guess what I'm trying to say. Uh, we do it at minus 24 luffs. On uh, YouTube, it's a little bit of the Wild West. Uh, louder is better. And it's kind of like what radio stations are doing now and record companies is that they're constantly pushing that, uh, that loudness level all the way up because they think louder is better. Um, I'm one of the people that don't agree with that. So I'm Mr. Negative tonight. Everybody get off of the lawn. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's a problem, and it will probably continue to be a problem until somebody uh, settles down and says, here are the standards. Uh, you can't go above minus 20 luffs or so many dB to be, uh, to be heard. Distortion is annoying and fatiguing. It's not good. Yeah, I believe, Mitchell, in your previous industry, you were regulated as to what volume levels you could put out. Um, not, not the case um, on the Internet, especially on different browsers, um, which includes even uh, video conferencing services. And um, another thing to keep in mind is that you probably are unaware of the type of volume that you are outputting even to Zoom or other places. And that's the reason why... Um, we will use uh, a set of meters in order to see because one thing, um, you know, in, in the virtual world, you can't really tell, you know, how you sound in the real world. You can hear yourself. You can hear if you're speaking loudly or not, but you have no idea um, how you look or how you sound. Um, even the, um, the feedback here on Zoom, the video feedback is more, uh, is more comp uh, complimentary than what you're sending out. So you can't really trust that feed. And as far as the, um, the audio, um, that's not something you can trust either. So that's why um, on your own content, you can't regulate other people's content on your own content. If you use something to make sure that you're putting consistent levels, your customers uh, won't have the normalization issues. Uh, Mitchell, you want to weigh back in? Just wanted to add to that. Um, you could have two things that are at the same volume on the meter and exactly the same, and one's going to sound louder than the other. 
And uh, that loudness uh, is what you perceive as volume, but not necessarily is volume. And what it is exactly is if you take the average volume of uh, a source and you move it closer and closer to peak limiting, the closer those things come together, the louder it's perceived. Uh, the more range you have between the, t the maximum level from the peak limiter and the lowest volume you have from the compressor or uh, for wherever you're running the level um, affects that loudness. That's why like TV commercials sound loud even though they're at the proper minus 20 luffs uh, when they're coming over because they're messing with uh, compression and processing uh, to make it sound louder and therefore more important uh, and more annoying. All right, let's go to our next question. Todd Weiser from Fort Walton Beach. When planning a video shoot or animated graphics effort, what storyboard or previous methods or apps do you use? Dave. I come from the world of storyboarding. So for me, doing it by hand was how I learned it. And uh, lately, uh, in the last couple of projects I've worked on, I've used a thing called Shotlister. Shotlister is sort of a scheduler for production. It's a mobile app, so it can be used on your iPad and referred to as you produce things. Uh, it allows you to schedule things and people, but it also allows storyboarding so that you can set a scene up, list all the people who are going to be in that scene, and draw out the plot as well as the camera angle and all the rest. So Shotlister is uh, iPad-capable and iPhone-capable, and uh, you can try it out for yourself for free, I believe and then you can uh, sign up for all the additional features. Um, I've only used it for a couple of years, but uh, before that I used another tool which was more a case of drawing on uh, using almost like a notepad where I kept a lot of scenes and I drew them out and marked them up, but uh, I just had them as graphics. And this one allows you to rearrange things. So if you've got storyboard elements that you're working on in your animation, and you see common elements, you can group them together into a production day. And then with other elements, you're going to group those together. And they might be in totally different parts of the finished product, but you're getting them all organized. And then you can readjust your schedule as things sort of slow down or speed up. So I recommend Shotlister. Um, and as well, there was um, an, uh, an easy release app that I use quite a bit. And that's part of my planning process. When you're going to have people in your video, you need to have release forms. And that easy release really had a lot of good templates to start with, easily modified for your use or your particular project. And uh, they print out real nice and people can also sign them on an iPad. So it moves everything right off the paper. And forgive me, Dave, if you didn't mention it already, what uh, type of content are you storyboarding with that app? I've done both animation, uh, graphic animation mostly, uh, but I've also done motion picture stuff where we had to mark out how we're going to shoot in the alley and all the rest and where we want the lights to be. And the cinematographer needed to have this visualized before he could do a setup. So I would, the day before, sketch it all out for him. All right, thanks. Let's go to our next question. Bob Sturdewind from Manoma Bahrain asks, what recommendations to connect from audio out from MacBook to DJI wireless mic for transmission to DJI receiver? Seems 3.5 out into mic 3.5, not the best practice. Okay, Bob. So 
you've got a question to use that as a um, to transmit audio instead of uh, to receive it. Um, I'm not sure why the 3.5 isn't working out. I know that um, sometimes you can get a limiter um, on things as well. I'm just going to look and see. Um, oh, Mickey in the chat says he would recommend to drop the wireless and run a cable, digital or balanced line level, ideally. So um, can't argue with that when, if you can get away with the wireless. Hope that solves your question. Next question. Douglas Carmichael. Linux has been a platform powering many backend services across multiple industries, but could you see more vendors in our industry adopting it on the front end and giving macOS competition? Nigel? Well, I guess the first thing is because macOS is a type of Linux, it's BSD, so it uh, that's the first thought. Um, I think it's been the dream for as long as I've been in and out of Linux, which to the best of my memory is like 22, 25 years now, that people keep saying, well, you know, there's this front end, we've had Debian, you know, search for Mac OS Linux front ends and you'll find no end of alternatives. The truth is the difference between writing a complicated back end and a complicated front end is massive. And to make the user experience to a non-technical person easy, reliable and convenient is really hard. And the truth is that nobody's really done it. I think the second thing you have to consider is that the model for PCs and laptops is not driven necessarily just by consumer use. It's also driven by a very complicated industrial complex that makes every PC that you buy at Best Buy uh, you know, have Windows on it because of the way the funding works, and Mac's always going to use their own software. So while I think you can find alternatives, you're not going to find them take over the mass market. Mitchell? Yeah, Nigel is spot on. I agree 100%. Uh, uh, Apple takes a lot of, and Windows to a degree, uh, takes a lot of that tweaking away from you. If you're uh, running Linux, I run Ubuntu. Um, I like to tweak. I get on the command line and I put little tweaky things in there and I modify the F-stab. Um, and there's a ton of things you can do in Linux that make it more of a bespoke device for your particular application. In my case, again, I'm talking about my little music server behind me, which uh, uh, is being repaired right now that runs that uh, RME device. Uh, it's running Ubuntu because I can set it up to do exactly what I want it to do and set it there and I know it's going to be uh, happy with it. And I'm not going to have some OS telling me, well, we don't really want you doing this or we don't want you doing that. So if you're a tweaker, I can see why Linux would make sense to you. Let's go to our next question. Douglas Carmichael again. Has anyone ever used Alfred, alfredapp.com, as a launchpad replacement on macOS? I've just started using it, and it is a very convenient way to launch apps and automate actions. John. I've used LaunchBar for years. I tried Alfred many years ago, but I just can't get over the dorky icon, so I don't use it. <laughs> you don't like the butler uh, at your beck and call, John? Okay, well, sorry. Uh, again, so Douglas, maybe you can ask uh, again on, on someone who has some Alfred experience. Let's go to our next question. David Brady from New York City asks, what are some creative uses for Apple, Apple AirTags or HomeKit? 
Can the two be used in tandem to some creative automations? What is the beacon range of the tags? John, do you have uh, some experience with that? Uh, specifically for Apple AirTags, the most creative use I have, and I use it all the time, several times a week, is I have a remote uh, case that fits an Apple AirTag in it, so I don't lose my remote in the couch anymore. And it is well worth the $25 or whatever the AirTag cost. Nice. I've heard of uh, people using them for their luggage and et cetera. But uh, yeah, I'll have to think about other ways of using them. Let's go to our next question. Douglas Carmichael wants to know, when reading about a state agency upgrading their IBM Z-Series mainframe, the documents mentioned RAM measured in terabytes. Being used to 16 to 32 gigabyte plus of RAM, would there be any application in our industry that could use terabytes of RAM? Nigel? So the, the get as much RAM as you can, particularly that old type of RAM. And theoretically, the more you can hold in the RAM, the less uh, paging you're doing to drives, the best thrashing, less thrashing you're doing, uh, which is what slows our machines down. I think the important thing for an IBM mainframe is to consider that, that typically what you have are hundreds or thousands of users accessing that system at the same time. They have particular transaction protocol uh, software like CICS or Kicks that allow 10,000 users at the same time to be hitting the same database. And that's why they use so much memory, because they've really got that concurrency going on. Uh, there comes a point where you can have too much memory because uh, you just don't use it and it's the most expensive. So what you should always implement is a memory hierarchy that really uh, has you think through how to use the most expensive and the cheapest memory and move the things from top to bottom. Yeah, I mean, as far as industry, Douglas, I think it depends on just what tasks you're you're using with it. Um, interestingly, with the M1 Apple Silicon, Apple went back to their base model, just having eight gigabytes of RAM. And I got to say, they're doing a lot with just that uh, little bit of RAM. But uh, yeah, it's application specific. Let's go to our next question. Bob Sturdwind from Manoma Balrhein. Tagging on with an audio levels question, I have seen the audio meter on after hours. Would it be possible to have a breakout room so we could go to it to set level and then come back into main screen without being bothered to others? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's not a bother. We, uh, we live to adjust everybody's level and comment on it. Um, I, if you go to uh, after hours, uh, Brandon keeps his uh, little uh, bot up there with uh, the Waves meter. Uh, I think he calls it uh, Meter Maid. Very clever name. Um, and I do know that I'm seeing it more and more in breakout rooms. So it's uh, it's pretty much showing up everywhere. The other thing is um, know how to use it. Um, you don't have the minus 24 luffs that we refer to is not a brick wall top level. Um, it's a range. So if you're a little below that or a little above that, it's okay. As far as levels go on after hours, doesn't mean that your results may vary. But um, it's a neat little device. Uh, you've got to use it correctly in order to get a, a realistic uh, level. For example, it takes about four seconds to five seconds for it to settle down. So don't just say testing one, two, three, and you're done. Um, you need to do things. So what we usually do is we put up our audio chain and we read through it. Uh, and then by the time we get to the end of the audio chain uh, or your sound system, uh, you've got a, a consistent level coming back at you. Go ahead, Dave. 
Well, I was just going to endorse what Mitchell says. I've recently uh, upgraded my and rearranged my system, and I got a lot of help on after hours with setting my levels, uh, setting levels back. I couldn't hear crunching going on, but the processor out of my computer was doing it. And the sound chain that I had in my system is not very complicated, so it was easy fix. But I think it's nice to have people listening as you do your test and not just meter things. Because the quality of the sound is not in the meter. The quality of the sound is in your, your voice and your delivery and then your, your sound chain. And if, if that's more helpful to you, then we don't need you in a room by yourself watching the meter. That, I don't think any singer really sings to the meters. They just sing. And then it's the engineer's job to make sure the meters are doing their thing. I don't think we've ever had anyone do a singing voice check yet, but could. Mitchell? Uh, Dave is referring to gain staging, uh, which is also part of it. It's not just the meter. It's also how your system is set up. And uh, you could have the gain staging set incorrectly, and the volume may be right, but it can still be distorted because you may be pushing your preamp too hard or some other device. So um, ask for help. That's all you got to do. Come into After Hours, and I'm sure there's an audio person there that will jump up and, uh, and help you out or come on the panel, and uh, we'll, we'll do the same thing there too. All right, let's go to our next question. Douglas Carmichael has a question for Josh. Josh, you mentioned that online services like YouTube and others have no standards for audio quality. Would automated quality control checks, audio level, video flashes, etc., at time of upload be a beneficial addition to set platforms? Mitchell? Best way to check it is with your ears. Uh, if you... Uh, if you know what sounds right, what doesn't sound distorted. Distortion, by the way, is something that you can learn to hear um, certain levels of distortion. I'm sure Mickey's uh, golden ears would hear it way before most of us. So your results may vary. Um, you need to learn all of the factors that go into making uh, good quality sound. When in doubt, um, don't be too loud because uh, that tends to push everything beyond its uh, capabilities. And there is no device or thing uh, short of, uh, what do they use, uh, SR1 or something like that to check levels, uh, digital levels. Um, it's it, it's really up to your ears to make decisions. That's the best way to do it. Just don't push it too hard. Yeah, um, Mitch kind of nailed it there. Um, I was talking mostly about levels, but your question, Douglas, is, is uh, audio quality. And Zoom's noise reduction does a very good job because can figure out most of the time what's the difference between noise and your voice or background music or other effects, but it's a very narrow filter that it has. So to be able to have a single metric that would tell you audio quality in general, um, I'm unaware of anything that, that can have that type of uh, processing. Mitchell, you have another thought? Yeah. Once something gets clipped, or distorted, uh, it's very hard to unclip or undistort it. There are some devices that'll do that. Uh, one that comes to mind uh, is the one from Thimio. It's called the Perfect Declipper. And uh, believe it or not, we use that on a lot of the uh, recordings we get now from the record companies uh, of songs that have been pushed too hard. If you look at songs nowadays on a waveform, sorry to go off on this, but uh, it's like a, a bar instead of uh, peaks and valleys because they're trying to push the loudness. So having a way to declip it uh, and get rid of some of that uh, that clipping of the waveform 
Uh, this device does that. I don't know how it's magic as far as I'm concerned, but there are algorithms that'll do that for you, but it's not part of the, uh, the YouTube process. All right. Well, thank you, our panelists, and thank you for our crew in the back that's um, helping us with our show. And thank you, thank you for our producers who've asked our questions. Uh, you provide the fuel for our show, so we appreciate that. But our show's not over. Uh, we're going to be moving into our second portion, which is our education hour. And John Stewart is, I'm sorry, John Snyder is going to be our host for that. John, uh, what do you have for us today? Thanks, Josh. Today during Education Hour, our panel will be discussing the role and impact of stress in the classroom. Can and should teachers leverage stressors to improve learning? If so, how? And if you're interested in learning what physically happens during a stressful event, there's a four-minute video linked in today's email that will be a great primer, and you can watch that during our brief break. We'll be back in a few. Welcome back. One topic that I personally find fascinating is the role of human cog cognition and evidence-based practices in learning. And today is going to be our first Saturday that we'll have on the topic about how human brains learn. So in future Saturdays, we'll share the title Educating Brains in the name. So specifically, today we're going to be talking about the role of stress in education and whether or not it's a good thing or how to leverage it. And in a moment, we'll turn our attention to the questions submitted by our producers in Mukana. So while you're all thinking up and submitting questions out there uh, in our producer world, you will be driving our conversation in the future. But let's go ahead and ha have our panel start sharing what they believe the role of stress in the classroom is. Dr. Clark. Thank you. Um, there's no one simple answer, of course, to this big question. Um, but one contribution I could make is to point out that um, stress in a formal learning situation in a classroom uh, doesn't start and stop with the opening bell. Uh, all of the people in the room arrive in the room with some level of stress or distress that they've carried with them from whatever they were doing and whatever they were subjected to before they arrived in the classroom, plus whatever stress levels are generated by revisiting a familiar setting where they may have been successful and happy in the past, or they may have been uncomfortable and unhappy in the past. So those reminders, if you will, situational reminders can move the move the meter all over the place for the for each member of a group i'm assuming a classroom group is a, a situation we're most interested in here not the individual so generally speaking the way we use the word stress is a negative um, term has negative connotations although i know it can be uh, used in both a positive and a negative way but the fact is that in education, the word stress is not a happy word. It's, it's not on anybody's uh, mission statement to, to increase the level uh, or maintain some higher level than uh, what otherwise would be the case. So I'd say that um, stress certainly, um, Attention needs to be at a level of 
um, making it possible for learning to take place. There's a kind of an agreement that I'm here to learn or not because I'm, I'm mentally busy elsewhere dealing with other challenges. So it's one of those psychologist answers that says it depends. And it depends on many, many factors, um, only a few of which are under the control of the teacher or the instructor or the authority. And Chris, so, you use the terms stress and distress as separate terms. Can you elaborate a little bit on um, why you would use those separately and how we can uh, maybe learn from that? Yes, I think distress, of course, uh, has negative connotations built right into the word. Um, and, and often in colloquial use in education, stress and distress are used as synonyms. Um, stress, in other words, is, or pressure is not thought to be a helpful um, condition of the individual learner or the environment. Uh, but um, if you think about stress as attention or focus, or, you know, there are other synonyms that could be used to um, interest, you know, fascination, all involve a, a raise in the level of our energy and a focus of our energy on something that is fascinating or is interesting or uh, deserves our attention. The tricky part, of course, is that um, learning is a, an invisible and voluntary process on the part of the learner. Um, teachers can't force you to learn any particular thing. Um, we try to be persuasive rather than um, dictatorial about it, and usually the honey works a little better than the threat of um, humiliation, embarrassment, or a bad grade. Um, so, but distress is kind of uh, clear in its, its negative connotations. Stress, less so, but you need it. You need stress to get out of bed. You need um, your muscles contract and the, the corresponding muscle stretches. So we need that, we need both. We need to, uh, to relax one muscle in order for the, its sister muscle to be able to contract and do the work. We need to put stress on one at the same time relaxing the other to be able to move our arms or legs. So, so that's the, the distinction in my mind that as a general term, stress is necessary or we would just be essentially unconscious. Um, but um, colloquially, the word stress is a bad word. It's been used to, dis to uh, signify distress. I'm reminded of uh, seeing Hans Selye speak, and, and he said, anyone without stress is dead. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, an alligator is not a good wife. So stress can happen naturally in your environment and how you deal with people. 
And much of what you say is, yeah, both the individual and in a classroom setting, recognizing that stress is not a negative, it's an, it's an opportunity. Interesting. Erin, what are your thoughts? Wow, I completely agree with Dr. Clark. There is on that definition of stress and distress. And another really great piece of information from our Mukana chat from Eric Billings. Um, that's what popped into my head when I heard stress. So when students are under a small amount of stress to come up with an answer to add to a conversation, sometimes when their amygdala goes into fight or flight, they start thinking of new ways to solve the problem or to answer the question. And in that case, sometimes you can come out with some of the most amazing ideas. If everything was non-stressful whatsoever, you might not actually learn anything. So we've always talked on the show about hands-on, like pushing buttons and breaking things and really trying to learn something by way of doing. So I think everybody has a little amount of stress when you're trying something new, a little bit of anxiety when you're trying something new. But stress in the classroom when it comes to what Dr. Clark mentioned as well, with what students are bringing in on a daily basis. That invisible backpack that we can't see. We can't see what if they had breakfast. We can't see if their families had a fight at home in the morning. And they're bringing that with them. As adults, we bring that with us too to our jobs, regardless of what it is. But as adults, we've learned coping skills to be able to function in our workspace, maybe venting to a friend or taking some deep breaths or you know, grabbing your favorite coffee or treat on the way into work. But students need to be taught directly how to handle stress, how to manage stress, so that when it comes to a distressing moment, they already have some of those skills in place so that it doesn't go to a five alarm fire. It's just more of something that they can handle. It's interesting, Aaron, that you talked about, we don't know the backpacks that students bring into the classroom. And I think that's a, a really big challenge because if we want to use stress as an education tool, not all of our students are coming in with the same equal load of stress. And so what might be activating for some might cause others to completely collapse in failure because of everything they have going on at home. Do you have any thoughts on how teachers can manage that portion of it? Are you just looking at each learner separately or trying to pull back on everybody? Or how do you handle that? It's something that you have to deal with both on an individual level and as a whole group. So every morning I do something called the zones of regulation check-in. So I ask the students where they are on this spectrum of feelings and I they have colors that go with them. So if I notice that someone is frustrated or worried or really upset about something, I'll pull them aside and I'll talk with them and talk about some coping strategies one-on-one. -on -one. Um, or usually the younger they are, the more they just want to tell you things. So they'll come up to you right in the morning and say, I didn't get to do this because, you know, my brother and sister got into a fight last night and my parents couldn't help me. They're usually very honest at a younger age and they'll be able to tell you. Um, but overall, anything social, emotional, making connections and relationships is the best way because that way you can look at your students by October and know, hey, Johnny looks a little off today. Maybe I should check in with him. Great. Thank you. Um, Dr. Clark, I see you just raised your hand. Was that in response to Aaron or was there um, something different? It is in response 
to Aaron and and I think uh, I think John Preto looks fine to me. Um, <laughs> but um, a more general way to uh, say what Aaron said is that um, as a teacher, I, in a way, force myself to tend to the uh, the state of the learning community first at the beginning of each meeting. Um, you may remember circle time on the rug at kindergarten, and that is an institutionalized way of taking the uh, social emotional temperature of the group at the beginning of our time together. And I think that should be applied at every level through graduate school. That is, let's let's pay attention to who showed up today because we're all a little different than we were the last time we met. We've been through different things. Some some of it is celebratory news, and the community wants to share that and celebrate that it's your birthday or that that grant came through, um, and that changes the whole or adjust the whole tone of the learning community and the time that we spend together. Um, it doesn't need to be long, but it needs to communicate the message that uh, we're a group here in support of one another, rather than a, a competitive set of individual teams who are uh, vying against one another for the, the prize of being uh, sitting in the front row or being the first, being the teacher's pet or the the top achiever. So in a different uh, environment, that, that will be uh, handled differently. But um, my experience and my recommendation is that tending the learning community is something that's typically done in the first couple of meetings of a, a higher education course, and then it falls off and we get, quote unquote, down to business. And my pitch is that we need to tend that community uh, throughout our interactions and even beyond uh, the last day of class. And, and that's one of the rewards of this approach to teaching is that you, your students and the teacher continue to be in touch with one another and the ideas that we discussed continue to resonate because they're connected with um, a collectively positive set of experiences. Thank you. Uh, I can sense there's a whole lot of depth in this conversation today. So producers, if you have specific questions or specific verticals you'd like us to go down, make sure you put those questions into Mukana chat. Otherwise, Tony, what are your thoughts on stress in the classroom? There has been so many great comments that have been made. Um, I, I, I've been struggling as I, as we were conversating about this uh, topic. Um, what was crystal clear for me was my first experience as working as a supply teacher or substitute teacher once I graduated from college, and I had the opportunity to work at a elementary school that was in the middle of uh, public housing. 
And part of that experience was that there was a pantry in the school that the principal had decided to create. And in that pantry was all of the normal toiletries that people would have at home, as well as uh, clothing and, um, you know, anything that you could think of that a, a child might need. And the reason for that was that the principal understood that because of this environment, that this was needed in order for the students to have a successful day in school. If they came to school and they were hungry or they were dirty, um, this was something that could be supported at least in the six hours that they were in school. And um, they may have had to return to their stressful environments once they left the school building. But while they were there, they were in kind of a, a sanctuary and they could they could go and have other experiences while they were in school. They could learn things. They could, because they were not they were not focused on the the environment in which they came from. And so um, this was in the late eighties, and I did I worked at that school for two years prior to uh, doing some other things, but. Uh, I, I, unfortunately, I think that we are still not removed from that situation in some environments throughout this country, that there is still a need for the pantry. And there is a need because some of the children in this country, and I know that we don't typically like to deal with politics, but the fact of the matter is that it is difficult to concentrate on learning when you are struggling with being hungry or being dirty or not feeling that you're loved. Um, it is something that I don't think that we can continue to ignore. Um, I was watching something on, on TikTok uh, last night, and it was sharing that the cost of educating someone at Stanford was around $50,000. And it also said the cost of um, keeping a prisoner in prison was around $50,000. And so the question becomes, what is the best way to spend the $50,000? And um, as I said, I know that we don't, we don't talk about politics, but unfortunately, when you're talking about education, the environment matters. The experience that people have matters. 
the things that they are dealing with on a day-to-day basis, their self-worth, all of those things matter. And those things are, in fact, affected by the way in which people who are decision makers view the rest of their communities. Thanks, Tony. I'll stop. I don't think that's a necessarily political conversation. It's human bodies when under stress and lack of appropriate food is a stressor can be impacted in their ability to learn. And I think in the chat, we have Bob Sturdivant and Eric Billings talking about how in grad school, we use stress by putting people into stressful situations purposefully to simulate the real world, whether it's in medical training or otherwise. And it's an interesting dichotomy because human brains don't understand what kind of stress they're in, whether or not it's legitimate or real stress. Human brains just respond to stress. And so we need to be thinking about that as we consider stress in the classroom. But let's turn to our questions from our producers. What's our first question, Dave? Cannot hear you, Dave, if you are talking. Just having a little trouble getting all <laughs> no the in the right order here. And uh, I'll get to this question here. Um, the first question actually was for me. Um, are we talking about acknowledging that stress is just a part of learning overall? Or are we talking mostly about providing accommodations for stress in formal learning? I think in asking that question, I was trying to separate stress and distress uh, the way that Dr. Clark has. Um, we all acknowledge stress is part of life and learning, and we're putting ourselves out there when we go to learn something, uh, whether I'm sent there by my mother or whether I choose to go explore or investigate something. It puts a stress on a person, and acknowledging that is one thing, but the job of a teacher also includes creating accommodations for that stress and many of the ways you guys have been talking about checking in with people before starting making sure everyone's focused if their lives are in turmoil can we give them a safe place Um, is that really what the focus for making the brain work better to accommodate those stresses acknowledging that you can't just erase them what do you think aaron so dave i totally agree that looking at this question, there's definitely two different parts to it in the sense that when I'm asking questions of my students and, you know, the same seven kids are raising their hands and the others are looking nervously at me, hoping, you know, oh, if I don't make eye contact with her, she won't call on me because I don't know the answer. That in and of itself is very stressful for kids that really don't know the answer. But that's also a part of what Chris also mentioned about creating a classroom community in that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to have a little failure. Mm-hmm. It's okay. To not know. Yeah. To not, it's mm-hmm. okay to not know. There's so many times that students will ask me a question and I'll say, I don't know. And they'll look at me and they'll say, but you're the teacher. You're the teacher. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're supposed to know supposed everything. To know. <laughs> and I said, Oh, absolutely not. But mm-hmm. I can help you find that answer. That's what I'm supposed to do is to show you. I should not be the sage on the stage. I should be the guide from the side. You know, so teaching students to understand that it's okay to make mistakes is the biggest part of the educational process. So 
asking kids on the spot to answer a question in class can be very stressful. On the other hand, whether they're dealing with stress at school or stress at home, I think it's vital that teachers really take that social emotional learning and they show them techniques and ways to calm down yoga, breathing, things that, you know, finding something to hold in their hands. Um, something that I've read about and it's actually worked on many people is if someone is very stressed and very panicked, you can give them one of two things. You can give them ice cubes to hold in their hands. Has to be unexpected though. They can't just know that it's coming. But if they're holding ice cubes in their hand, their brain kind of sends a signal that let's focus on this and not our stress. The other thing that might work with students better are those um, sour gummies, just sour gummies. I usually love the watermelon ones, but they love Sour Patch Kids. Having them eat a couple, if they're really, really stressed or anxious, it kind of stops them in their tracks the same way an ice cube in your hand feels. Um, so as long as we teach them the different strategies, I think regardless of the situation they're in, whether in the classroom or out, they'll be able to handle it better. And presumably you know those they'll work, develop Aaron? their own. Sorry about that. Uh, Aaron, do you know why those things work? So there is something very scientific about it, which I don't know. But all I know is that it, the brain is so focused on the stressor at the moment that when you eat something sour or feel something extremely cold, it just kind of, it refocuses your brain super quickly because of the sensory experience that it has to focus on that because it's such a difference from what they're experiencing at the moment. Interesting. Dr. Clark? Well, Aaron is always a challenging act to follow. I love the, the ice cubes and sour gummies um, idea. I could put uh, sour gummies in my pocket, but I couldn't put ice cubes in my pocket for, for a stress and anticipation of a stressful day. Um, my thought is that is to remind ourselves that uh, most uh, formal learning situations, settings, are engineered to be comfortable. There's, in our wealthy country, we have heating and air conditioning, and we have chairs that uh, reward being upright um, and having good posture, having your feet flat on the floor. Um, we we hope to have good lighting and uh, just overall and not overcrowding. Uh, so we put a, put a lot of uh, financial energy into creating uh, safe and comfortable learning environment settings, physical settings, probably the biggest budget item on most school districts uh, budget list after personnel is physical plant, maintaining all these factors. And yet still, there are a lot of other contributors to stress and distress that go beyond the phys physiological. Um, but um, the point is that we care about stress and stress management and trying to minimize the distractions from the uh, the business of the focus on learning. And yet um, teachers who are part of these learning communities 
also need to recognize that and need to be supported for taking the time and uh, providing the attention that's required to make the social and psychological environment as comfortable as the physiological or um, physical environment is. And uh, we don't provide much training in teacher education classes and uh, even field experiences that focus on how to, to help um, adjust the thermostat psychologically and socially in the classroom, as I think we should. Um, we focus much more on teaching as a performance, and the teacher is the performer whose articulateness and timing to which uh, are attributed uh, the learning outcomes, a good teacher or a bad teacher, um, a successful, a novice teacher and a veteran teacher. But the missing link, in my opinion, is that we could do a lot better job in teacher preparation of focusing on establishing a, a constructive and comfortable psychological and social learning environment to go along with the uh, thermostat being set at a reasonable level. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I know in outdoor education, like when you're going talking about summer camps and that sort of thing, the point is to get people out of their comfort zone to cause their um, brain to be more open to new experiences through some of the various brain chemicals that uh, happen when you get out of your zone. And that might be similar to holding an ice cube or, or eating something sour. And that's also how oftentimes we train, like the office hours training plan is to use an apprenticeship model where you're trained in the live production area. And like Alex talks about using adrenaline, which is part of the stress response system to as an educating tool. And so as we go to different audiences or training for the corporate world is oftentimes uh, very stressful in that same sense or higher levels of education, we increase the stress level. It seems a bit more than we do in K through 12 education. What's our next question? Well, before we get to that, I'd just like to add that as a person who's only recently joined office hours, I find it a much more calming environment than I expected it to be because of all the support I get and all the people who can talk me through and put me in the right frame of mind in order to, uh, even the banter before the show starts is a way of doing that community thing that Chris is always talking about that we're checking in with each other before we start. And it's a thing that Office Hours just naturally did. So I just wanted to endorse that. But our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. A major contributor to stress levels within any group of people is conflict. What are some useful techniques to cool things down without creating more conflict? And what, what does it look like in the elementary conflict resolution Aaron? is here, but you go ahead. Go ahead, Aaron. So conflict resolution is something that we absolutely work on the elementary schools. And we have to keep working on that all the way up through high school and beyond because we all have conflict with somebody, even as adults, whether it's family members or friends or people in our communities. So teaching students ways to handle that stress, ways to handle a conflict is absolutely vital from keeping calm during a conflict to thinking before you speak um, and things like that, you're really going to help them not only in your classroom setting, but 
you know, in the real world as well. And it's, it's amazing to see when we teach that very directly and explicitly how it can change even the most minute issues at recess. They're able to use their words instead of being physical. So I think at any point, helping the students and modeling for them different conflict types and how to address them is absolutely key. Or if they've already, you know, said something that they should not have said and have upset someone, having that time to converse with them and say, let's talk about where this went wrong and explain to them and break down all the parts that this is how the other person perceived what you said and really breaking it down so that when they're adults, you don't need to do that as much. How about between teachers? Ooh, that's a good one. So again, it, it's, the, it's the same concept. If regardless of who you're talking to, but especially a colleague, um, because you can choose your friends and you know your family is a part of you, but you can't choose your colleagues. But the same concept still applies. Teaching people how to remain calm and know that for the most part, people aren't trying to be malicious. They're just trying to share their own opinions or their own perspectives. Allowing people to be human and realizing that sometimes people make mistakes. Sometimes people don't know the whole story. Showing adults and children these concepts can help with pretty much any type of conflict. Great. Thank you. What's our next question? From Kenneth Jones in Seattle, would you agree that there's a significant difference between pressure and stress in that stress is pressure I don't want? Pressure alone, I think, is not stressful. Dr. Clark? There is a significant difference between pressure and stress. Um, physiologically or Scientifically, pressure is uh, characterized as force that's uh, steadily applied from the outside on a submarine hull, for example. Um, whereas stress is a, sounds to me like a, a much more internal process. It's the effect of, of pressure or uh, some kind of outside um, influence internally so pressure is what's being applied either by the environment or by a person or situation and stress is my response to that i'm my body uh, my physiology is is feeling different as a result of or i'm attributing it to the uh, the pressure that's being applied um, Pressure, uh, Kenneth says, uh, pressure alone, I think, is not stressful. Um, I, would, I would slightly disagree with that and say uh, pressure uh, produces different forms of stress within each individual. Depends on their past history and experience with, with this kind of pressure. It depends, as we said earlier, on the stress levels that they brought to the situation even before uh, this new pressure was 
applied. So, so I think uh, pressure can often be stressful. Uh, some folks who are accommodated to that pressure will um, not be distressed when they enter that the arena, so to speak. Uh, but others will be, and others will be repetitively. So I think the helpful distinction is that pressure is something applied from outside the individual or the group, and um, stress is the variety of responses to that pressure. I never thought about it uh, internal versus the response, or external versus the response to external. That's an interesting uh, distinction, Aaron. Chris, you absolutely touched on the way my brain was thinking about this in terms of going back to that invisible backpack. We don't know how stressed students are at home, what their family's reactions to things going wrong is. So for some students, seeing something that's minimally stressful to some people is a complete devastating moment for some, which is why some of these big emotions arise in kids and adults, because we might, students might have seen that when a parent or a family member that takes care of them gets really stressed, something bad happens. So when they see that in the classroom and it's carried over potentially that, uh-oh, you know, someone, whether a student or an adult in the room gets stressed out, that student's first thought is, uh-oh, something horrible is going to happen and they're going to react versus someone who isn't dealing with as much of that or a different kind of reaction at home won't really react to that situation in the classroom. So this is where the home and the school um, go hand in hand, knowing that some things aren't going right at home. That's why it's vitally important as well to reach out to parents throughout the year, especially at the younger age, to find out if there's anything going on at home. So sometimes parents will send me a quick message and they'll say, you know, be prepared. Um, Susie's dog passed away last night. And so you're trying to deal with that stress, trying to learn from it from her perspective, as well as continuing with the rest of the class. So understanding that concept of pressure and stress, you also have to understand that there might be 10 times more of that in their invisible backpack that we know nothing about. Thank you. Uh, what's our next question, Dave? It's from Douglas Carmichael. Many public venues are introducing sensory rooms to help neurodivergent people calm down after being overloaded. Should we be utilizing similar techniques in the classroom to help neurodivergent students actively manage their stress? What are your thoughts, Dave? Well, I'm all for this, actually. I think uh, the environment for neurodivergent people is a completely different perception than what I walk around with. And to Aaron's point previous about the environment you come from influences how well you're going to learn when you're put in a formal environment. And I think if you give people things that will help with that formal environment, um, certainly allowing children to bring in things that comfort them uh, when they're very young is a great technique in kindergarten and first or second grade is to have a, a thing that's on their desk that reminds them of home or something. 
Uh, for neurodivergent people, they sometimes need to just step back and they need a place to separate from to re-enter the process. And I can think of just a couple of people I've met who just virtually just had to walk out of the classroom, get themselves together and come back in again, and they were fine. And they weren't so far off on neurodivergent as they, you know, I would have liked an opportunity sometimes in uh, in later, uh, you know, uh, post-secondary to be able to just sort of go out, take a drink of water, come back in, and let's start that again. So I think it's perfectly comfortable and perfectly easy. I know situationally it's difficult for people to be leaving and coming in, but many uh, of the of the special needs kids have handlers or or helpers. And when they signal that this is going to be needing a stressed lowering moment, uh, they should be able to have a safe place to go. Thank you. Erin? I love this question. I love this question. So being in a school where over half of our population is neurodivergent, being neurodivergent myself, I do think it's absolutely vital to have a space for anyone really to have a, a chance to calm down. So in each classroom in my school, every single classroom has some sort of fidget box or brain box. And they have everything from like a squishy toy to like a fidget spinner or something that clicks or something that, you know, just feels good in their hands, like a putty or a clay. Um, so we've shown students how to use these items in an appropriate manner so that it's not a distraction, but it's actually a help. But then even very basic things, like if students are using pens, allowing them to do the whole clicky thing, as long as it's not bothering someone else, giving them bands, like rubbery bands around the ends of their desk or their chairs so that they can bounce their feet and move while they're in the classroom. I have this incredibly cool chair that the occupational therapist was oddly enough getting rid of. So I snatched it up because it's a plastic chair, but instead of there being a normal chair, it's a yoga ball on wheels. So it's fantastic. So giving the students a chance or the adults, because quite frankly, I use the yoga ball pretty frequently myself, is absolutely vital. But we also have a sensory corner on each floor of our school where there are things like magnetiles and building blocks and things that roll, things that can help students when they need some time. Um, but also something as basic as go, sending them for a walk. You know, um, I've in previous years, I've told students that um, who are neurodivergent that they need, you know, a minute or two, you know, they'll do this signal to me and I'll say, and I'll nod so if I'm if I'm in the middle of talking and they just take a quick lap through the school. They come right back in, they sit down, they've been able to calm down. So I think it is absolutely key um, on a little note personally uh there was a time a couple of years ago that i was incredibly stressed out due to a couple situations in the classroom and my vice principal happened to be walking by um and they kind of stepped in they looked around and they're like uh do, do you need a minute and i was like yes please so i took one of the teacher chairs to the calm down space and i put myself in it and gently closed the door kids with kids we don't shut the door but for adults i was able to just take two or three minutes to breathe, do my own coping strategies and come back to the classroom ready to continue on. Thank you. Chris? Great story, Erin. Um, the metaphor I think about 
in response to Douglas Carmichael's question is uh, the batter in the World Series. That's a high pressure situation. It's the top of the ninth, and this this could could mean a, a walk off victory or a walk off defeat. And um, the interesting thing about Major League Baseball's rules is if the batter steps back out of the bat the batter's box, there's a timeout, and the pitcher can't pitch, and the batter has a chance to collect himself and step back in and signal to the umpire that now we're ready. Time time goes back on. And I think uh, we can extend that metaphor to our students. When, there's, when they have the authority to call time out for themselves, to collect themselves and not be penalized for that, um, then I think we have uh, a community that's safe for uh, being nor- uh, neurodivergent. Uh, eventually, what we have to do is uh, delegate the authority over monitoring their own state of readiness to learn and participate to the learner and not uh, assume that it's got to be uh, vested in the, the all-seeing, all-knowing teacher, because we don't. We don't see it all and we don't know it all. Uh, so distributing that uh, sensitivity and the ability to call time out, at least for yourself, is, I think, a, a, a very powerful life skill that would make um, learning communities more successful with diverse populations. Thank you. And I'm really glad to hear that these schools are starting to share some of these with non-neurodivergent kids as well. I know when I was growing up, the solution was basically shove the kid out in the hallway until you wouldn't disrupt the class. And now it's become, you know, my children are both on IEPs. They're in a classroom specific for their sensory needs, which is dimmer lights and closed windows, that sort of thing, as well as they have in their IEP, they can have a chew toy that they carry around with them or fidget in the classroom. So it's um, giving them the tool they need that will also not disrupt the rest of the class. And it's amazing how far the education communities come in the last 20 years. What's our next question? John, before you move on, could you please define neurodivergent for those people who might, might, might be listening? Yeah, it's, it's anyone who has, neurodivergent is anyone who has a non-normative um, brain pattern, I would say. It's most commonly used to refer to people on the autism spectrum, but it's not exclusive to that. And our next question, please. And Douglas Carmichael asks, uh, Tony, you mentioned it's difficult for students to concentrate on learning when they don't feel loved. How can educators do that within the boundaries of today's child protection laws and current public sentiment? Thoughts, Tony? So so the way in which you, you combat that is you provide a pantry. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not hard. Um, I'm going to say something that probably may sound a little unrealistic. I I look at at people who are educators, particularly K through 12, as as people who are in ministry. And the reason I say it that way is because 
I see it as a calling. I see it as a a profession that is beyond doing a job. It is a calling. So the way in which children can or students can experience love is by being in an environment where a person is going beyond the call of duty for that the job requires. There are specific things that educators are required to do in terms of educating or um, instructing their students or creating an environment that learning can take place. When you do those things, that supports the whole human being as opposed to just doing the job of educating. That is an opportunity to show love. Thank you, Tony, for sharing that. Erin? So just to hop back for one quick second about the term neurodivergent. Um, yes, it absolutely goes with the concept of autism, but it also includes people with ADHD, Tourette syndrome, dyslexia, um, dysgraphia, and other ways that your brain doesn't work typically, I'll say. Thanks for the correction. Absolutely. Um, but just an add-on, not correction, just add-on. Um, but Tony, um, yeah, Tony, this is something absolutely huge that educators have the passion, have that calling for helping students. That's why we do what we do. And when we make connections, when we understand who our students are, we're able to reach them both verbally and allowing them to be emotional, to have, to allow them to be vulnerable with the adults in their school that they trust. For example, every morning I stand out in front of all three third grade classes and we have students from all grade levels, third, fourth, and fifth coming up the stairs and walking past our classrooms. And the amount of hugs I've gotten from students, whether they were in my class, my homeroom class, or they came to me for science, I get bombarded with hugs every single morning. Or, hey, Miss Graham, how's it going with this? When's your next Disney trip? They have that connection. So I will never go up to a student and just hug them for no reason out of nowhere, but I will always accept hugs from students or give them that emotional support they need, even if it's just a simple hand on the shoulder or on the arm and just saying, you're doing a great job. I think that can be showing them how much they are loved and how much they are appreciated. And when they know that they're loved and that they're taken care of, they will rise to the occasion both academically and socially. Thank you. Appropriate human touch is so important in everybody's life. Uh, it triggers all sorts of positive things like dopamine. Dave, what are your thoughts? My thoughts went to probably a, a distinction between love and caring. Um, in a school, you can express caring for a person, um, and if they ask for a hug, you can reply and give them one. I don't think teachers run around trying to hug all the kids like Aaron was saying. You can't sort of push it on them. They have to want to have a hug or get a response from you that's a caring response. And I think when... When I was working with a principal uh, for a short time, uh, I noticed every morning he just stood outside and greeted every kid as he came as they came through the playground, 
And every kid gave him a hug because it was not just, you know, I love you hug. It was kind of an appreciation. I appreciate you being there for me. And then they went to class a little more comfortable. He's also a fellow who had a pantry. So I, I wanted to just support Tony's idea that this was also a principal who understood that unless the right conditions are there, all you're doing is eating up time. And you've really got to create a, a collective environment for all the kids, not just the ones who need special care. So that was my thought is that the laws that govern, you know, how you can express love is really about power. Uh, you can't use your power over someone else to get love back or, or push your love on someone else. And teachers are in unique positions of power, and they, I think all of them are trained to understand there's a difference between showing that you care about somebody or the extreme of saying that you love somebody. It's, it's that simple. Thank you, Dave. What's our next question? On that question, John Snyder asks, the human body has a stress response system that responds to stress by coming down after the fact. In chronic stress, we never fully recover. How can teachers help students manage chronic stress? And to give a little bit of clarity on this, what I'm thinking is um, when we have a sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, and they work together to trigger your brain to be active when stress happens so you can respond to stress and make sure your body can recover after the fact. So it primes you to, for example, run away from a tiger and then also have your muscles recover when you come down. But in a chronically stressed world, we don't ever come down. So how can we, um, with as teachers and educators, use that or make sure that our students are healthy and we're not just causing more stress that's harmful? Erin? It all goes back to a lot of the stuff that Erica used to talk about in terms of doing things that are going to help them move their bodies, especially things like yoga, things like taking a walk in nature, um, finding some sort of fidget toy that they can hold on to that can help them calm down or cool down. Or if there's a certain stim that they do with their hands or their feet that they're able to kind of come back down to the green zone. That's what we say the the happy and calm zone is. But I think we need to set that up for students. We have to give them examples. We can't just say calm down and especially and have them know what to do. Um, in that case, it's like trying to baptize a cat. You know, you you don't know, like they don't know. They're all over the place. But when you teach them those very specific skills, would you rather do A or would you rather do B? Like, would you rather have a sour gummy? Would you rather um, go sit in color for four minutes? Something that gives them a choice still, but allows them to choose something that's going to actually help them calm down. But showing them as many opportunities as possible is what's really key. Dave? Well, I was going to pull this out of the teacher's hands and put it in the workplace too, because there's a small legend about uh, industrial light and magic had a room filled with cardboard boxes and a baseball bat. And it was where they went to relieve stress. And Nerf bats are just as good. They have the same effort without breaking anything. But in the workplace, I've had to calm people down or ask them to, you know, just go get a burger now, have a, a early lunch, and then come back and maybe you'll have a different perspective on this graphic you're having trouble with. So, uh, 
I think it applies in the workplace too, that managers and supervisors need to monitor people uh, and whatever chronic stress they're having, give them strategies that are in the workplace to, to bring them down. Great, thanks, Dave. Next, last question. From Eric Billings in Washington, DC, how practical is the expectation that a teacher is going to calm the students' external stresses and provide an education to them? I wouldn't expect most teachers to have that much extra bandwidth. Aaron? We don't. Pretty simple. We don't have the extra bandwidth to do it, but it's absolutely vital. Um, I can tell you that if I went up to any of my students who are now in high school, they might not remember what I taught them in science or in math, but they will remember that in my classroom, they were taken care of and they were loved. So relationships over content any day. Absolutely. Dr. Clark? I would like to say that if Eric Billings is asking a great question, but it seems to be premised on the idea that um, to be able to do it all, teachers would have to be um, trained psychologists as well as trained uh, lecturers with subject matter expertise and classroom management is a, a term of art that's used to describe how you uh, organize and manage the flow of the day and the interactions among your students as well. Um, my sense of what um, Erin does is that she establishes an expectation that when you come to our classroom, you're coming to a place of safety, trust, and care. And in that environment of safety, trust, and care, you will be uh, better able to learn, better to, able to understand and incorporate uh, new ideas and skills and techniques because you are not feeling the threat that you're going to be uh, unsafe or humiliated or penalized if you quote unquote make a mistake or if you are slower to or arrive at the learning goal uh, by a longer circuitous route that uh, isn't um, edutypical. So that's where I'd put the focus is on establishing a, a social system that is safe, in which trust exists, and care is palpable. And then the learning can happen within that space. Thank you, Dr. Clark. What's the last word, Tony? Everything that Dr. Clark and Aaron have shared is right on, right on topic. Um, I, I just would say that the fact of the matter is that it's not, it is not sometimes doable. That's the reality. And, and because of the stresses that the child's or the student's parents may have, um, that, that classroom is the only safe space. And the question becomes, 
why is it that some children are able to have a positive external environment to live in and others are not? And what can we do to minimize the work that the teachers have to do in terms of providing that safe space during the school hours? So that's a larger question. And not not that we can resolve it here, but it is something to think about in terms of what can we do to minimize the external stresses that the parent or parents are having. And we know um, that when children have less stress in their external environments, they are more in tune with being able to learn when they're in school. That's the reality. Thank you so much, Tony. And we have, it's been an hour, we're barely scratching the surface, but thank you panel for our discussion and guidance on stress in the classroom. I love every Saturday watching our conversation emerge, growing where the sunlight shines instead of where I might expect it to travel. Well, today we traveled about 51,430 physical miles, thanks to the Tololo Traversal. And one key takeaway for me is that we don't know the backpack that our learners come in with. And so thank you, Aaron, for bringing that up. Every day I learn something new from office hours, and I'm especially appreciative to everyone who makes it possible. Our back end crew, including Peter Belbin, who's training as technical director, and Javier Alfaro, training as question manager, great job. If you are interested in training, make sure you sign up in our daily email. And our panel, uh, both educational and general, thank you for availing yourself to our questions with your answers. Finally, producers, thank you so much for asking these great questions. Without them, the show would be impossible. It takes a community for quality like this, and I, for one, am proud to be a part of Office Hours community. As a programming note, anyone who'd like to contribute to our Saturday hour, we will be meeting tomorrow in Zoom to discuss our show topics through the rest of the year. Ping me in Discord for the meeting link if you'd like to join. Have a great day, and we'll see you all next week. Great conversation. Thanks, everybody. That was lovely. Eco. See you tomorrow, Dave. Yeah. Um, looking forward to brainstorming Indeed. some more. <laughs> Bye. All right. Bye now.